This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So, really, this week's parsha. First of all, I do want to tell you that this Friday, Bezrat Hashem, you should take all your old challah and old bread and old whatever you have in the house, and you should feed the birds. And it's a very nice thing to go feed the birds in Marine Park because there's a lot of seagulls there. And um, no, because every time I try to, I feed the birds every Friday. I take my challah from the week before, and I feed them every Friday since I'm a, a, a young guy. And it's a, it's a very big skula for Parnassah. Um, but it's, it also, it sort of gives you a great feeling because it's an interesting thing. I'm taking food that I would not eat. It's old bread, right? And it's something that I, that I have, I have no use for. And people just throw it in the garbage. If you take that food and you come, like for instance now when it's very cold, the seagulls are really, really hungry. And people don't feed them, so they're really starving. So when you go to Marine Park and you feed them, they come by the hundreds. And they're eating and they're starving. And I'm thinking to myself, I would have thrown this out, but this, this could help someone else. So even though it's not something for me, doesn't mean it's the end of the road for the bread. They, they're starving and they eat the bread. And the interesting thing, if you want, if you, sometimes it happens, that I'll come to the, to, the, to the park and there's no seagulls there at all. And I'll take the bread and I'll throw it onto the, to the lawn. And people are walking by like the guy from Meshuggah. He's feeding the air. There's no birds. Who's he feeding, you know? But then they see it's Wallace and they say, yeah, yeah, we know about him. He's talking about him. Right, you know, he's, he's, he's imagining there a bird. You're not supposed to laugh. You're supposed to say, what are you talking about? Why are you agreeing with me? So anyway, so you see one bird. I'm serious. There's one bird, right? It circles. Within 30 seconds, there are hundreds of them. It goes. I'm not, it goes. And I don't know how it tells them. Whatever it is. They talk. Whatever it is. It goes across Avenue U. And that's where they all hang out. And they come back hundreds of birds. I, I took some teachers from my school on Friday home, so I stopped to, to feed the birds. And they're also like, who are you feeding? Like, there's no one there. I said, you see there's one bird up there? Watch, give me 30 seconds. And 30 seconds later, there are hundreds and hundreds of birds. This Friday is a mitzvah, one week a year, it's a mitzvah to feed the birds. Why is it a mitzvah to feed the birds? Because when the mun, when the mun came down... So on Shabbos, Moshe Rabbeinu said that there will be no mon on Shabbos. Because Hashem gave double on Friday. So there would be no mon on Shabbos. There were these two big Risham, bad people, named Dustin and Laviram. And they were always looking to make Moshe look stupid. So they took their mon, right? And they got up very early in the morning, before the sun came up. And they spread their mon all over the field. And they figured that when the Jews wake up, they're going to say, Ah, see, Moshe doesn't know what he's talking about. There's mon in the field. Along came the birds before sunrise, and they ate up all the mun. Probably was a big party, because the mun could taste like anything you want to. So the birds probably, you know, were thinking fish, I don't know, whatever they were thinking, but they probably enjoyed that very much. But what happened is, Dustin Aviram told all the Jews, you got to come out here, you got to see, Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't know what he's talking about, you got to see, there's mun in the fields! And everybody came running out, oh! You know, they always wanted to, to there were a lot of Jews that were very anti-Moshe, and they, the heir of Robin, they came running out, there was nothing there. And Dustin Aviram looked very stupid. Why? Because the birds came and they ate the bread. Therefore, it's a mini Yisrael to show, to show Hakaras HaTov to the birds that we feed them this Friday before Shabbos. Even the big tzaddikim used to put on their back porch, used to put some bread on their back porch. And it's an Indian, this, it's a school, it's an Indian to feed the birds. And if you think about it, if you think about it, Hashem shows us here, and this is such an important lesson to everyone in this room. God shows us here, Hakaras Hatov, 
how strict God is about showing gratitude, showing Hakaras Hatov. These are not the birds that were in the Sinai Desert. The birds in Marine Park have never seen the Sinai Desert. And I don't know if they were seagulls. Could be they were from the Amsif. I'm not sure. But they're definitely not the same birds. What do these birds deserve to get bred in Brooklyn, New York, because thousands of years ago, some birds in the desert ate the mud. And, 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 and what did they do? They ate something they didn't want? They put out bread. They saw bread. They ate the mud. They did their nature. And the answer is that the bottom line is that Moshe Rabbeinu was not embarrassed. And therefore Hashem said that I want a mini Yisrael that Christ should show for the rest of their lives till the end of time. And when it comes, Pasha B'Shalach, you have to show appreciation. So imagine how God is going to reward a human being who does something good for another human being. Out of his nature. Out of his nature. If his nature is not to be so kind, and he's not in the mood, he just had a bad business deal, and he's in shul, and a guy's bothering him for money, and he's so not in the mood, and it's against his nature, and he takes out a $10 bill and he gives it to him. If a bird, thousands of years ago, we have a minog that we have to go feed him forever on Pasha B'Shalach, imagine how a human being is going to get paid. Last week's Pasha, the dogs didn't bark. Last week's Pasha, the dogs didn't bark on Kleisra when they left Mitzrayim. The dogs, there's a whole thing why we're not supposed to have dogs. Dogs are a representation of the other side. The, the other side looks like dogs and Shemite, whatever, there's a whole thing. Dogs are, are the other side. Now, in, in Kishif, in magic, the Mitzrayim's power was using dogs. Hitler, Yemach Shemo, also had a dog. The Nazis had German shepherds. They were very into dogs. There's a whole thing about dogs. I'm not telling you, I guys sitting oh my God, I have a dog at home. Now I'm going to look at him. Is he, is he the Eight Sahara? Is he this? Is he that? Jews are not supposed to have dogs. There's a different reason, because the dog is not sneistic. That's why, that's why it says that Jews are not supposed to have dogs. They don't reproduce sneistic. They're not sneistic. And therefore, we're not supposed to have them in our houses. But besides that, the Mitzrim, who were, who were very, very into witchcraft, they had very big power over these huge black dogs. And these huge black dogs were all at the, the um, what's it called, the gates of Mitzrayim. And any Evet, any servant that tried to get out of Mitzrayim would get ripped to pieces by these dogs. And no servant ever got out of Mitzrayim alive. When it came, the night of, listen, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful medrash, I didn't say it last week. When it came, right? And the Mitzrim were dying. So Hashem let the Mashchis go. The Mashchis is the Malacham of us. Dogs bark when there's a dead body. Dogs are very, very uncomfortable with death. And it's their nature that when there's a dead body, they, dark, they, they bark. If they have an owner, they bark. There's many stories, but that's how they look for dead bodies. They, in buildings, they use dogs. Dogs are very uncomfortable with death altogether. They even feel it coming. The Mahamovis is in the house and there's a dog. It'll start barking. It'll start going crazy. It'll start getting very uncomfortable. So the Medrash says that the magic dog, right, was supposed to rip the Jew. So Akash Baruch Hu said no. Then the magic's over that night. Magic was broken. That was one of the things that was broken that night. But the Malachamavas was traveling through the whole Mitzrayim. So in their natural state, right, being that the Malachamavas was in Mitzrayim, the dogs should have started to bark. 
Now, if the dogs would have started barking, even though the Jews knew that they were going out of Mitzrayim, it would have triggered in the kids and the Jews a fear. Because everybody feared, that, like, like Lahavdul, not Lahavdul, like the Holocaust. There, there are people that told me that they were more scared of the German shepherds than they were scared of the Nazis. Because they would have the, these dogs attack the Jews and rip them to pieces. And people saw this happen. So when they heard a dog bark, and even to this day, there are many people from Europe that if there's a dog in Borough Park or wherever it is, you'll see them run across the street. Because the Nebuch, they, they, they got so scared from what happened with the Nazis that they're, that, 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 that they're very scared. So that night, even though there was death in Mitzrayim, they didn't bark. In their own nature, they didn't bark. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, Allah in the Torah, if you have an Avela, if you have something that's not kosher at home, a piece of meat that's not kosher, you should give it to the dog. Why to the dog? Give it to the cat. Give it to something else. And you have to pay back the dog that he didn't bark when you left Mitzrayim. Because if he would have barked, it would have triggered in you, you would have been scared. Because a dog, and the dog's are kishim, you would have been very scared. So the Hakaras HaTov boys, the appreciation that we have to have for a dog that didn't bark, and for a, for a bird that ate the man is lo'ilim, is forever. How much more we have to have appreciations. I know I keep hammering this, but I can't hammer it enough. Appreciation for our parents. They're not dogs, and they're not birds. And they do more than the dogs and the birds did. And therefore, the hakaras are told that we have to have for our parents, and the guys who are married, hakaras are told that we have to have for our wives. They put up with all our mishugas and all our craziness, and that they put it up, and they're human beings, they're not dogs and they're not birds. And sometimes a woman has to go against her nature. She goes against her nature to, 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 to do things for her husband. But she does it. So, a husband, his appreciation for his wife. And there's no question, if you have a karasatov for the people that you work for, then you're a good worker. If you have a karasatov for your parents, you're a good child. If you have a karasatov for your wife, you're a good husband. So, it's a subject that I didn't even prepare to say tonight, but I guess somebody in this room needed to hear it. And therefore, I'm saying it. It's a very important subject, and that is Akar Satov, and that is appreciation, because you can't appreciate God if you don't appreciate your parents, and you don't appreciate your wife, and you don't appreciate the person you work for even, that he gave you a job. The unemployment today is at the highest rate ever. Anybody who got a job in the last three months, four months, you're going against the, the you know, against the wave. It's very hard to get a job today. So if someone gives you a job, you have to, have, you have to appreciate it. If he treats you right, at least. If he doesn't treat you right, it's a whole different story. All right. The, the, the subject matter that I want to talk about tonight, which is important, very, very important, is the Muna, is belief. The Yamsuf was split in this week's Pasha, and we sang Shira. After that came the Mon, because we wanted food, and the Mon came from Shemayim. Now, it's very hard to understand, very hard to understand what happened to this Jewish nation. Here they are, and I, I spoke about this week in the yeshiva, and I, it's important for all of us. Here they are, they saw ten, at least ten makos, right, in Mitzrayim. They got out of Mitzrayim, they're on their way to the Yamsuf, right? And number one, there's a very scary, oh, I didn't bring my chidah. She read the chidah from inside, I didn't bring my chidah tonight. I'll tell you what he says, it's very scary. In the second pasuk, in this week's parasha, it says, "Vachamushim alu bnei Yisrael me'aretz Mitzrayim, 
Chamushim could mean they were armed. It also means one-fifth of the Jews left Eretz Mitzrayim. If you look in Rashi, Rashi says that Chamushim means Echad Michamishi Yatsu Abachalaku Mesu Veshloishis Me'afela. So what are we so excited about, guys, about Yitzhak Mitzrayim? There were three million Jews in Mitzrayim and 600,000 got out. Sounds like a Holocaust. Rashi says in this week's parasha that during Choshech, during darkness, there were three days of darkness that the Mitzrayim could not, that's last week's parasha, they couldn't get out of their chairs. It wasn't the lack of light. It was a creation, a new creation, darkness, like a black ink. Nobody could get out of their chairs. Why? Because the Jews, there was a terrible disease, and four-fifths of the Jewish nation died. Right? 600,000 got out out of 3 million. That means 2,400,000 Jews died during those three days. And they were buried. And Hashem didn't want the Mitzrim to see the Jews being buried. So for three days... The Jews that lived buried the Jews that died. And for some reason, nobody talks about this. It's a disaster. And, and what was wrong with these Jews? What are they, nuts? They're crazy? They saw Dom Tzvadeya, Kinim, Orov, Devesh, Chin, Barod. Right? They saw all these Marcos. And they said, we don't want to leave. We'd rather stay here and work. What were they doing? Living in, in, in a casino? Living in a, in a beautiful house? They were working like animals. They, were, they had to get their own hay, build their own bricks. And, it's, and Rashi used the Lashem, Urishayim. They were Rishayim, and therefore they died. That's a, that's a disaster. The Chidah says that before Mashiach, I should read it from inside because it, be it would be stronger. The Chidah says on that week, on Nachoshech, he says that when Mashiach comes, there will be 15 days of darkness. And during those 15 days of darkness, the Jewish people will once again bury, I don't want to say four-fifths, of the Jewish population of the world will die. And it will be dark for 15 days so that the Jews that live will be able to, will be able to bury them so that the Goyim will not see them die. That's disaster. It's not about us seeing Mashiach, that's disaster. One-fifth is a holocaust. One-fifth out of Mitzrayim is a holocaust. How come no one's screaming? Okay, the Chamushim, two million four hundred Jews, died in three days, have a good day, we made it. Right? Cousins, uncles, parents, friends, this was one nation. And, and what, what did they, why didn't they leave? Why didn't they go out? They saw everything that everyone else saw. The Mitzrayim said, Get out of here. The Mitzvah said it's the finger of God. The Mitzvah said God is the right one and we have sinned. So how can it be that Jews said we're not going anywhere? And it happens again in this week's parsha, And it's very hard to understand, but I'm going to explain it to you tonight because we're all the same. We're the same way. We're no different. Listen carefully. This week's parsha. so they're stuck at the, at the, they're stuck at the Yamsuf. The water is on one side, and the Mitzvah are behind them. coming close. They lifted up their eyes. Behind them is this great army of Mitzrayim. They became very scared. And they started to cry. What did they cry? They would have cried, Hashem, save us. We would have been good. 
That's what they cried. They said to Moshe, Are there not enough graves in Mitzrayim? You took us out of Mitzrayim to kill us over here in the Midbar by, by, by the Yamsuf? What did you do to us? So one second. Four-fifth died in Mitzrayim. The one-fifth I got out wants to go back to Mitzrayim. What's going on here? They saw the Makos. Right? Halizeh. To tell you, Moshe Rabbeinu, isn't this what we told you in Mitzrayim? Leave us alone and let us work for the Mitzrayim. Better to be a slave than to be dead in the desert. So Moshe said to the nation, what are you worried about? What are you worried about? What are you worried about? You're out of Mitzrayim. We had water. Big deal. Hashem turned water into blood. He made frog. He did all this stuff. He could, he could make the water go away. Or even easier, he could freeze the water. And we could just walk across frozen water. What's the big deal? Right? So he says to them, Stand here. Watch what Hashem is going to do. Like you see Mitzrayim today, you'll never see, you, you'll never see Mitzrayim again. Hashem yilachim lachem. He's giving them a whole, like a coach. Giving a whole speech before the game. You can do it. The other team is never going to be as good as you. In fact, after we decimate the other team, they're never going to be at all, right? Hashem, Yilachem, Lachem, God is going to fight for you. Ba'atem Tacharishin, you don't have to do nothing. Put your hands down, God's going to do everything. Hashem, Hashem says to Moshe, right? Moshe starts now to dive into Hashem, help us. We're stuck. You know, but that's where you're between a rock and a hard place. Mitzvah behind us, the water in front of us. So he starts to daven to Hashem. Hashem says, Matitzak Eloi. What are you davening to me now? Now's not the time to daven. Go into the water. This is the most not understandable pasuk in the, one of them in the whole Torah. What, what, do you, what, what do you learn in school? What are you supposed to do when you're in trouble? What do we all learn? What does Rabbi Wasi scream all the time, guys? What do you do? Daven. So here, Moshe Rabbeinu gets up, they're stuck between the Nile, between the, between the Yamsuf and the Mitzrim, and he starts to cry, and he starts to say to Hillim, and he starts to pray to Hashem, Hashem says, this is not the time to daven. This is the time to jump in. This is the time to daven. That's what you're supposed to do. What's this Pusik saying over here? So, he lifts up his stick, right? And we, we all know the story. That uh, one of the one of the Jews jumps into the water, and Nachshon jumps into the water, and the water splits. So the question is, why didn't why well, wasn't that the best time for all of Klal to daven to Hashem? Why did Hashem say now's not the time to daven, now's the time to jump in? I'm going to answer all my questions with one answer tonight. He goes on. Let's go after that. So they go through the Yamsuf. You can imagine the Yamsuf split. And there were hundreds of miracles in the Yamsuf. They saw each other. There was food coming out of the walls. Hundred, there's more than hundreds. There's a whole list. All the miracles they saw in the Yamsuf. They come out of the Yamsuf. The Mitchum go in. The water comes on top. And they say, hey, how do we know that the Mitchum died in the water? Maybe they backed out on the other side. And they're still alive, and they're going to come around, and they're going to get us. Right? What, what, what are you talking about? 
so Moshe Rabbeinu had to daven, and the Yamsuf had to throw out all the mitzvahim so that the Jews could see them on the side of the world. All these are very big questions, and anyone in this room is thinking to himself, Rabbi Wallstein, religious, I'm not religious, I put on tefillin, I don't put on tefillin, I talk to girls, I don't talk to girls. Whatever you're going to say about me, Rabbi Wallstein, there's no way that I would be like these guys. There's no way. I mean, you took me through the Yamsuf, you took me out of a trium, I see unbelievable miracles, a maid in the Yamsuf saw more than anyone ever saw, a regular maid saw more miracles. Rabbi Wallstein, I don't care what you say about me, there's no way I would come out of the Yamsuf and say, okay, now show me that you're dead. I would have been dancing, and I would have said, thank you, Hashem, and I would have become a chassid or whatever it was, and I would sit and learn all day. And I, that's it, I would have been a breast lover, and we'd be dancing and singing Shira the whole time, and, and that would have been it. It would have been me and Hashem. It would have been unbelievable. And you say to yourself, I, I don't understand these people. They're supposed to be, it says that the, 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 the nation of the Midbar was greater than any other generation. Get out of here. God, you show me a couple of these miracles. Whoa. I'll become, I'll be learning, I'll be, uh, I'll become so firm they won't know what to do with me. Just show me like, you know, show me some miracles. Like, you know, like I'm walking by the Hudson River on the West Side Highway and it just puts open. You know, so like, you, you know, show me a sign. A girl came up to me last night after my shear. She said to me, you know, I, I kept Shabbos three weeks in a row and I didn't see any miracles. <laughs> I said, I think I kept about 9,000 Shabbos in a row. I still haven't seen any miracles either. Where does it say that I said, everything's a miracle. So then I said to her, okay, close your eyes and walk across the room. She said, what? I said, yeah, close your eyes and walk across the room. So she closed her eyes. She took three steps. Of course, she said, I can't. She opened her eyes. I said, here's a miracle. You just, you got vision. You open your eyes. Here's a miracle. There's miracles all the time, but you don't see them. So, so when I was a little kid, when I learned this Chumash, I said to myself, this is a crazy story. I wish I would have lived there. Blood and frogs and lice and doctors and boils and, and, and the Yamsa splits open and all these miracles. God was all over the place. I mean, he was in your face. You couldn't miss him. If you, you close your eyes, you couldn't miss him. And then you got the Torah with lightning and thunder. Your heart went in. Your soul came back. It went back and forth. You saw Malachim. You saw this. You saw that. And even Shugam in the Torah. Okay, we're going to send 12 spies into Israel to see the land, to see if we could capture it. Hashem said, go in, I'll take care of everything. And a bunch of giants scared him. Four giants, and they're running back. Oh, we can't go, we can't go. Four giants? God split the Yamsuf. He did all the Makos, and according to one, man, one person, he did 250 Makos, right? And you're worried about four giants? Give me a break, right? So, there's a break here somewhere. There's something wrong in all these stories. And then after the Yamsuf comes the Mon, Pasha's Amon, which we said today, right? Again! God can't give you food. He did all this. You can't give you food. And again, poor Moshe Rabbeinu. Same passion. They just came out of the Yamsa. They just sang Shira. Oz Yashir. They just said, Thank you, Hashem. They just had a baby. You know, when you have that baby, it's amazing. You say, God, you're amazing. You're unbelievable. I saw the birth of a child. And then you get a phone call 15 minutes later that the business deal didn't go through. And you're like, I can't believe Hashem did this to me. How come the business deal didn't go through? You just saw the birth of a baby. What do you want? If Hashem wanted the business deal to go through, it would have gone through. Where's this, this separation in us? So again, right after Kriyas Yamsuf, they come back and they say, 
What? You, you, we were sitting there, and we had meat, which wasn't true. And we had bread, right? And you took us to this midbar. You took us out to starve. He said that already by the Yamsef, and the Yamsef split. Why are you saying this again? So Hashem said to Moshe, there's going to be one that's going to come from Shemayim, and they're going to know that I took him out of Mitzrayim. And Kachoya came down the Mon. Interesting, very important, that Hashem said that you shouldn't leave the Mon for the next day. The Mon, if you left it for the next day, it rotted and it became no good. So the next day, of course, what did the Jews do? They left it for the next day. Right? To see what's going to happen. Because, so who got very angry? Who got very angry? Moshe Rabbeinu got very angry. He says like this, Don't leave it till the next morning. They didn't listen to Moshe. They left it till the next morning. And it became full of worms and it dried up. And Moshe got very angry at them. How could you leave it till the next morning when Hashem said not to? But Hashem didn't get angry at them. Only Moshe got angry at them. When it came to Shabbos, right? When it came to Shabbos, so when the Jews went out on Shabbos to look, even though Hashem said, I gave you double, don't look, there won't be any. Hashem got angry. And Hashem said to Moshe, when are they going to start listening to me? Why on Shabbos did Hashem get angry? And why did Moshe get angry? And why, once again, did they not have emuna? Did they not believe in Hashem? And that's my, that's my Chaburah tonight. And I'm going to answer it all with one, with one story, which a lot of you know, but I'm going to try to get the story into your heart so that you, that you understand it. And why did four-fifths of us die? And why are, Hashem should help us. Why does the Chidah say that for 15 days, it's going to happen again? You know, I don't know how many Jews there are in the world, but one-fifth of us is really very, very few. Why is it going to happen again? If Hashem's going to bring Mashiach, why does it, why, well, how could there be Jews that are not going to believe? How is it possible there are going to be Jews that are not going to believe? So first of all, I told this kid that if you would show the people from the Yamsuf a cell phone or the internet or a light bulb or an airplane, they would say that what we have is much bigger than Kriyas Yamsuf. That you could talk to someone in a second Across the world. In the Medrash it says that one of the miracles in the Yamsuf was that you could talk, even though there were walls between each Shevet, you could talk through the wall. Ah! We would laugh on the floor. Imagine if you were selling a cell phone. Yeah, new Yamsuf cell phone. You could talk from one side of the wall and they'll hear you on the other. That's the distance? Your cell phone works two feet? I don't think I'm buying that. Right? Cell phone works across the earth. So, you know, and it says there was ice, became ice. Amazing, a miracle. The water became ice. It didn't have freezers. So to them, it was a miracle. To us, ice is a miracle? Tell anyone here, ice is a miracle? Big deal. In the desert, you have a freezer. You go into the tent and there's a freezer plugged into a generator. You have ice. We, we don't understand. And that's why in the times of Mashiach, it's the same thing. We don't understand that technology today is a miracle of every second. Yamsuf was one moment. Mitzrayim was one year. Mamun was 40 years. We're living with light bulbs 
and air conditioning and refrigerators and cars. It took them 40 years for us to do the Sinai Desert, maybe a day. If you use my car anyway. <laughs> but not nearly as long. They were walking. And they found, if you look in the Torah, they found wells. Right? They, were, they found 12 wells of water and 70 day trees. You could put up a Moshav today in the middle of the Sinai Desert with 4,000 water faucets and 20,000 palm trees. We can have that done. Lahabdul, they're doing Vegas. They put up a hotel with palm trees, with this, with that. Two years. Big deal. Hashem put 12, 12 wells. We don't need wells. Anyone in this room have a well? You got to go outside in your house and take a thing and pull it up. You go outside here, you turn on the faucet, the water runs. If they saw a faucet, they would say, how could you not know God? You get into a car, what is that? You turn it, you step on something, and you go from here to there? What is that? You don't have to feed it hay? (laughs) You don't have to clean up its leftovers? Amazing. A camera? A camera? If you would have been in, in Kriyat Yamsuf and taking pictures and say a second later, it's digital. Hey, look. That's how you look in Kriyat Yamsuf. So we've gone out of their minds in an airplane. An airplane is not Loy Lushaya. It's, it's not, it's not. So when the Gedalim look at a plane in the air, they say, my goodness, it's a Kriyat Yamsuf. How could the human being not go crazy? We all get into planes. I, I'm amazed. You know how heavy that thing is? You get this plane, and the guy says you're at 40,000 feet. And you look at the thing, you're going 600 miles an hour. There's nothing in the tire that went 600 miles an hour. And there's no human being in the tire that flew 40,000 feet in the air. Bilam flew. I don't think he was 40,000 feet in the air. 40,000 feet in the air, and it's a whole city. There's 350 people sitting in that thing. And they're reading, and they're talking, and they're eating. They would say to you, this is the story to bring you close to Hashem? But you have a modern technology and you don't know there's a God? They would look at our door and they would be giving a shear and they would say, they're nuts. And they would say just the opposite. If I would live in that door and see a camera and an iPod and the internet and a plane and a car, I would, I would have to be religious. How could you, how could you not be religious? So how come we don't, how come we don't get it? And how come we don't have this emuna? So the answer <laughs> is a story that I say very often, but it's an important story and really answers all these questions. Before I get to that, there's a story that I saw this week in Avas Chaim. And, and it has a lot to do with, and Muna doesn't only have to do with, it has to do with you. There's, there's a lot of boys and a lot of girls that I talk to who really want to change, who really try to change. But they fall. And they make big mistakes, not little mistakes. Some of us make little mistakes, and some of us make big mistakes. And the Satan's power is that once you fall, he tells you you're so bad that by getting up, it's not going to help you anyway. You're done. You lost everything. Which is the most untrue statement in the world. Because in this battle, until you're dead, until you're dead, you don't belong to him. Until you're dead, you can fight him. 
So as long as there's life in your body, you don't listen to this guy. But how do you fight him? Where do you get that kerecht? Where do you get that emuna and that strength after you fall? In other words, to come in here and give you guys a great cheer and everyone walks out, oh man, that's it, no more internet, no more that. That's easy. That's easy. Good speaker gets up, tells you a good story. You're dead, that's it, I'm not talking to girls no more. I'm not smoking no more. I'm not drinking no more. Right? Butte. That's easy. The hard part is, after you fall, and you're all by yourself, and there's nobody screaming, get up. And there's no one giving you a great story. That's the test. The test is when you're on your knees, and when you're on the floor, and when you're, when you're hurting, and there's no Rebbe getting up, and you're not by the shear. When that person gets up, then he is going to become much stronger, and he'll probably fall again. But you know what? Once you know you can get up, next time you fall, that's how we beat the Yitzhahara. Once you beat him on something, then when you fall again, you could say, but I came out of it last time, and I got better for three months, so don't try to tell me that I can't get better. I did it already. So you have to do it that first time. Like I told you, I got rid of television, and then I said, I can get rid of television, I can get rid of movies, I can get rid of movies, I can get rid of this, I can get rid of this, I can get rid of this. One thing leads to the other. You see your own strength. And, and, and right now, I am on a diet, and I've been on a diet a hundred times, and it never worked. And, and I said, this time it's going to work. My wife said, come on, you, you've done it 20 times. And I said, you know why? Because this time I'm, I'm plugging in to all the things I stopped. I was always on a diet. I want to lose weight. I want to play ball. I want to do this. I want to do this. this time I said, no, 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 Wallerstein, hold on a second. You used to watch TV day and night. You stopped. You don't watch any TV at all. So if you could do that, this is food. They're not telling you fast for the rest of your life. They're telling you you can't eat dipsy doodles. And you can't eat Nestle's Crunch. And you can't drink Coca-Cola. But Baruch Hashem, you can eat. And you can drink. So why can't I diet? So I finally got smart enough to plug in to say, I beat my Yetzirah on television. I beat my Yetzirah on movies. So if I did that, and that was stopped dead. It's not like, okay, I won't go to ours, but I'll go to PG's. I won't go to P. No movies. No television. No magazines. No English books. It's not like a different kind of English book. So food, so what are you, crazy? They're not telling you you can't eat. They're just telling you you can't eat this, but you can eat something else. So I really feel it. It may work, it may not work. I might be back here eating potato chips next week. But that's where I plugged into. I plugged into, I beat the Yetzirah in this, I beat the Yetzirah, so I could beat my Yetzirah for corn chips and chocolate. And, and that's the kayak, that's where a person has to plug in. I want to tell you an amazing story that's brought down about Rabbi Masi ben Kharash. Rabbi Masi ben Kharash was a very big tzaddik. He was sitting in yeshiva learning Torah, and the way the story said is his face was like, was like the sun. And his, his image was like a malach. He was, he was unbelievable. Why? What was his chutz that he should have such a glow on his face? Shalom, nasa, eina, lihistakel, beisha. He never looked at a woman, except his wife. He never looked at a strange, I don't mean a strange woman, I mean, not a strange woman, but any woman. Never looked at a woman. That gives you an R on your face. It gives you a light on your face. Okay. Pamachas, one time. Avraham Satan. The Satan came by. Viniskane, and he became very jealous. It bothered him. It bothered him that this rabbi doesn't look at women. Omar, so the Satan said, Is there a human being that can control himself never to look at a woman? Never to do this sin. Can't be. 
So the Satan went to God. And he said in front of God, God, Rabbi Masi ben Kharosh, Mahu lefunecha. God, what do you think of this rabbi, Rabbi Masi ben Kharosh? Hashem said, Amalo, Hashem said to the, to the Malchamavas, to the Satan, Tzadik Gomorhu, he is the perfect Tzadik. Amalo, so the Satan said, Oh, you think he's the perfect Tzadik? Hashem, Tainli Rishus, give me permission. Ba'asi Senu, I want to test him. Amaloi, Hashem said, You're not going to win. Hashem told the Satan, You're not going to win. But if you want to, Lech, go, try it out. Halach, the Satan went, He turned himself into the most beautiful woman. There was never such a beautiful woman, woman ever in the world. He's a Satan. If he's going to get dressed up and look like a woman, he knows what to do, right? Okay. He says, the, he was as beautiful as Nama, Achois Tuval, Kayin, who the Malachim came out of Shemayim, the Nephilim, and asked Hashem to come down to this world because they were so beautiful. So he came as a woman. Here's this rabbi, Shtayin in Beis Medrash, shows up this unbelievably crazy beautiful woman. Kivin Shehegish, boy, when he felt that there was a woman in the room, he turned his face away. So the Satan went to where he turned, to his left side. So he turned his face to the right side. So the Satan went to his right side. And the Satan didn't leave him alone. said, I'm nervous and I'm scared. Shema Maybe my Yitzhahara is gonna, is gonna beat me. The Achetiani and I'm gonna sin with this woman. Karl Talmud, he called his student, Shahayu Mashares Lefanov, he called to his student that was standing in front of him, for Amalo, and he said to him, Leich, go, Hovali Eish, bring me fire. Umasmir. Masmir, I think, is a hammer or a, a nail, a nail. Bring me a big nail, the heavy light. So he didn't know what his Rebbe wanted, so he brought him a, ha- a, a fire with a nail. So the rabbi took the nail and he put it into the fire. And before the Talmud could do anything, when the son of he stuck the nails into his eyes, then his tamay became blind. When the satan saw that this is what he caused, he began to shake. And he ran away. He saw what he did. He couldn't handle it. And he ran away. So HaKosh Baruch also saw what happened. So God, at that moment, He called, the angel will fall. And he said to the angel will Go down right now and heal him. I want his eyes back. Heal him. So the Malach will fall, came down, and stood in front of Ramasim. Now he was blind. He said, who are you? Ramasim said, who are you? I don't know who you are. Amalai will fall. I'm the Hamalach. I'm Rafal Hamalach. Shushlachani Hakadosh Baruch God sent me the Rappai Shuzeinecha to give you back your eyes. Right. So he he passed the test, and now he's getting back his eyes. No. Amalo, Hanicheni, leave it alone. Leave it alone. Don't fix my eyes. Mashahoyahoya. What happened happened. Okay. So Malach Rafal went back to Hashem. You don't need me to tell you what Ramasi said. He said I should leave him alone. 
So God said to the Malchufal, Emolai, tell the rabbi, Ani Arev, I guarantee, Sha'oidla Yishlaba Yetzaharla Oilam. I guarantee if he lets, if he, if he lets us fix his eyes, Yetzaharla will never ever come back to him for the rest of his life. So he went back and he told that to Ramasya and he, and he, um, he healed him and he, he opened his eyes again. Where did someone get this power? Where did someone get this power? He took two nails, he stuck them in his eyes. So that he shouldn't see, and it was a Satan's test, that he shouldn't even look at her for one second. So my answer to everything I asked tonight, and I'll end this with one of my most famous stories, which I heard from one of my Talmidim, who's Yehuda Stern, he's not here tonight, but he is one of my Talmidim, and he called me this week, he gives a share himself now, this is a boy who grew up sort of in my house, he's like a Ben Bias to me, and he knew all my stories before I ever spoke, and he knew who my father was, all the Shalom, this uh, in a week, his, is his yard site, and he knew my father's be talking in Hashem, my father's belief in Hashem. He knew all the stories that my father never missed a minion for Hashem. And he called me up yesterday, and this is a separate story. This is not the story that answers the question, but he just told me, he said, Rebbe, I gotta tell you something. He's a lawyer today. He's half a day a Rebbe, he wanted to follow in his Rebbe's footsteps. Half a day business, half a day Rebbe. The first half a day he's a Rebbe, ninth grade Rebbe in Tab. The second half a day he's a lawyer. And he's a lawyer on, on injury cases. That's, his, that's what he does. So he said to me that from Shemayim came last week, there was some an accident, I don't know exactly the whole story, but there was this guy who he contacted who was in the hospital, and this man is an extremely intelligent person. Very, very intelligent, very American, and it's a huge case. He got hit by a car, it's a multi-million dollar case. Rabbi Stern, my Talmud called him up, and he said that he would meet with him. He works for a lawyer. He's a lawyer, but he works for a lawyer. He doesn't own the, comp- the, the practice. He works for a lawyer. And they made a 4 o'clock appointment. They're going to go to the hospital. They're going to meet this man. And R- Rabbi Stern said they pretty much, he knew that he's not going to get the case because it's a little firm in Brooklyn. This guy is a, an educated. He's going to go for some big, you know, Shlomusky and Lomusky and Lewatsky in Manhattan. You know, huge firm. You know, one case is for Coca-Cola. I go for some Jewish guy in Brooklyn on Avenue J. You know what I mean? But, you know, you have to try. Anyway, they have a 4 o'clock meeting. So Rabbi Stern tells, tells the, his boss, listen, before we go, I want to go down Mincha because we're going at 4 o'clock. Mincha Shki is a quarter to 5. We're going to be there for a while. We're going to miss Mincha. So I want to go to Landau's. I want to go Davin beforehand. So the boss said, no problem. We'll leave at 3.30. We'll go to Davin Mincha, quarter to 4. We'll go to Maimonides, wherever the guy is. Fine, whatever it was. But the lawyer, his boss, started getting, got very busy. And when he finished getting busy, they realized they can't make mincha. To be there at 4 o'clock, they can't make mincha. And they know that this guy's real American. And, you know, the lawyers don't show up on time. It's already a bad sign. You don't want to hire them. So the, it, was, it was my Talmud's case. So the head guy, the lawyer who owns the practice, said to my Talmud, we, we you know, Davin Mincha private, we, 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 we can't go to the minion. We're going to miss, we're going to miss it. We can't go to the minion. We're going to miss the whole thing. Baruch Hashem, he learned from my father. And my student turned around and he said to him, listen, it's very simple. We're going to Mincha. Or we're not going at all. This is what he told his boss. We're going to Mincha. It's my case. Or we're not going at all. The guy's like, okay, we're going to Mincha. 
They go to Mincha. He called me yesterday to tell me the story. They go to Mincha. They get in the car. They're late. They're, they're late. They're 25 minutes, 20, 25 minutes late. They already know they're not getting this case. They walk into the room. The guy's in the hospital, right? The two of them. He looks at Jeff Stern, at my student, and he says, I just want you to know that you don't have to tell me anything because I've been thinking, and I just made a decision a few minutes ago, that no matter what, I'm giving you the case. They didn't sell him the firm. They didn't tell him about any other cases. Nothing. And, and, and the, 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 his boss is looking at him. He's like, this doesn't happen in our business. Who did you do? How much money did you make? What, that, 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 right? Have a nice day. You got the case. When I get out of the hospital, we'll sit down. We'll do the details. So he called me up and says, Rebbe, that was your father's bitachin. You don't miss minion for anything. That's a muna. Now, this Jeff Stern, who's a lawyer, told me this story. A lot of the guys here know it, but it's the answer to all my questions. He told me the story that he learned in, in law school in a, in a class called Coaching Your Client. Talking to your client, coaching your client. And this is the story that answers everything. So, and then people who are coalition and the people who are watching have heard the story. You can turn it off if you want to. But if you understand the story, then you understand the answer. And the story went like this. There was a very big politician and he was a very wealthy man. And he was accused of murdering a 17-year-old girl. And it was going to be the case of the century. Because this guy was very big in politics. And he went ahead and he hired for himself the biggest lawyer in the United States. This lawyer never lost a case. Except he was very expensive. But this man was very, very, the accused was very wealthy. And he, he took as, a, as the money up front $5 million. What does that call the money up front? A retainer. I always thought a retainer is the thing you put in your mouth overnight. But, okay. He gave him a retainer for $5 million. You don't lose with this guy. Who's up against this defensive, defending lawyer? An assistant DA, some little schnook, young guy, 24 years old, who just came out of law school. No chance. They're going to, the, the defense is going to take this prosecution and eat him for lunch. And the whole press is writing about, how could you put an assistant DA against the biggest lawyer in the world? But that's the way it works. Cases go the way cases go, and that's who got the case. Case opens up. And on one side, you have the assistant DA and the family of the girl. On the other side, you got this schnazzy, you know, $250 tie, $800 suit, $900 shoes, you know, octopus shoes, whatever, ostrich shoes. You know, the guy looks like, forget about it, right? And, and, and the case begins. And the assistant DA gets up, and he's making the best case that he can. And da, 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 da. Anyway, the first lady, she's saying that she was outside the room, and she heard screams, and this guy walked out of the room. And what time was it? Three o'clock. Okay. And the press is waiting, you know, they're waiting. And now the defense gets up. Cross examine, right? And he gets up and he says, So it was, you know what, I need a stender because I got to do the standing up. Much better standing up. You bring me a stender? Slap me a stender. It's a case in court. You, need, you know, I don't need a stender. Forget it. I use my chair. All right. So this is the case in court. I hope I'm still this guy. So he gets up and he's cross examining. And he goes to this lady and he says, Excuse me, how do you know it was 3 o'clock? She says, I looked at my watch. It said 3 o'clock. And what kind of watch are you wearing? A Timex. So you're wearing a Timex. And how do you know that the Timex, some people are, when they're late, they make their watch a little ahead, some a little bit behind. Maybe the Timex battery was weak. Thank you very much. Thank you. How do you know that the Timex was on time? She goes, I don't know. Ah! Got you. People in the court are sitting there going, 
Five million dollars for this idiot? Who cares if it was two after three, three after three? He's cross-examining a Timex watch instead of cross-examining the witness. And the, 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 the one who's being accused, he's sitting there, this politician, and he's beginning to sweat a little bit like, what happened to my lawyer? And the case goes on for five days. And this assistant DA, this proof, and that proof. And this guy, the defense lawyer, is getting up, the $5 million man, and he's just making a chayzik. He's making a joke out of the whole thing. And the press is like, what's going on here? He never did this before, and they're getting crazy. Okay. Five days, the case is over. Jury sitting there, six women, six men. And now the judge turns to the assistant DA, and he says to the assistant DA, I want you to do summation. Summation of the case. So the assistant DA gets up, and there's 12 people sitting there, and they already know that this guy is guilty. Because this guy didn't cross-examine anything, and everything that the accusing you know, lawyer said was kept, because the guy didn't cross-examine anything. So they're all thinking, this guy's going to the electric chair, he killed a 17-year-old girl. Anyway, the assistant DA gets up, and he's feeling good about himself, because like, he really thinks he's good. You know, like, this $5 million lawyer, he can't cross-examine my people, right? He gets up, he looks at the jury... He says, men and women of the jury, that man sitting in that chair, well, not pointing to you, that man sitting in that chair murdered a 17-year-old girl. She will never have a prom. She will never have children. She will never be married. He took away her whole life. I move a life for a life. Did you find him guilty of murder one, punishable by the electric chair? And there's quiet in the courtroom. And he sits down. And the jury's saying, oh, are we going to fry this guy? Oh, is he guilty? Okay? Nebuch, the poor politician, has spent $5 million. He is sweating. He is, this guy did nothing for me. I, I lost the case. I'm done. I spent $5 million on an idiot. Judge says, okay, defense, summation. He gets up, a lawyer, and he turns to the jury. He says, so you're all wondering, huh? Jury, judge, press, why I didn't cross-examine anybody? Because this whole case doesn't exist. You see, last week I got a phone call from Mexico. The supposed victim girl that got killed called me. She just ran away from her parents' house. And she told me that she's going to come back because she doesn't want my client to be found guilty. In fact, she called me this morning. And at exactly 3 o'clock, she's going to be walking in through that door. And therefore, I find it a total waste of time, of all your time, to cross-examine and make a fool out of everybody. For there is no victim. And if there's no victim, there's no murder. So I move that we just wait till 3 o'clock, which is in half an hour, and this case will be over. And all of a sudden, all the 12 people sitting in the jury, they're like, oh my God, we were ready to fry this guy, we were ready to, to say he's guilty. Could you imagine we would have killed the wrong man, and the judge is thinking to himself, I can't believe this, and the place is buzzing, and the whole place is going crazy. Is it true? Is it not true? Okay. 3 o'clock, girl's supposed to walk in, everyone's looking at the door, exactly like this door, nothing. 3.15, nothing. 
3.30, nothing. 3.45, nothing. Finally, the judge gets up and says, listen, I don't know. He tells the lawyer, I don't know what game you're playing, but I'm telling you right now that at 4 o'clock, you're doing summation, girl or no girl. Okay? He says, no problem. We'll wait till 4. 4 o'clock, there's no one there. This guy, the, the politician is sitting there. He's like, what is he doing? What is he doing? He turns to the jury. This is, this is taught in law school. He turns to the jury, and he says to the jury, okay, you want summation? I'll give you summation. American law. You can't find someone guilty unless it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Which means that to find someone guilty, you have to be 100% sure that there's no doubt in your mind. You're 100% sure that that person killed the other person. Is it true or is it not true, men of the jury and judge, that from 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock, you were all staring at that door. And if you were staring at that door, that means that you had some percentage in your head belief that someone would walk through that door. And if you believed that she could walk through that door, means that you are not beyond a reasonable doubt, means that you cannot find my client guilty. And the press goes, this is a true story. This is taught in law school. And the press goes crazy. And the politician starts banging the guy on the back. Brilliant! <laughs> Why fight a whole case? He tricked them. But that's the law. And therefore, since you all looked at the door, that means it's not beyond reasonable doubt. And the judge says, jury, he's worth his money. <laughs> Go into your room, do what you got to do. We can't find them guilty. We did all look at the door, which meant that we believed a little bit after the whole thing that she might walk through. And the jury goes into the room, and they're slapping themselves in the back, and the press is like, next time, 10 million. He's brilliant. And he comes, the jury comes back after three minutes, and they're all sitting there, and the jury person gets up, and she says, we, the jury, find so-and-so guilty. Murder one punishable by death. And the judge says, no, 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 you can't do that. This is my courtroom. This is American law. If there was reasonable doubt, which there was, because we all looked at the door, you cannot come back with a guilty plea. And the, the jury person says, excuse me, judge, I'm going to ask this young girl sitting next to me to speak. And she sits down. And the young girl gets up and says, yeah, when everybody walked in the room, they were going to find them not guilty. But I changed all their minds. And everyone's like, what? And the, the lawyer's looking at her, what? What did you say? She said, I'll tell you what I said. While everybody in the room was looking at the door, I was looking at the accused. And for the whole hour, from 3 to 4 o'clock, the accused never turned around to look at the door. Which means that he knew she was not going to walk through the door. And the only person in the world that could know that she would not walk through the door is the one that killed her. And the judge said, you are brilliant. Guilty. 
punishable by death. And the lawyer turned around to the politician, to the accused, and said, you idiot! I won the whole case for you! It was won! It was made in the shade! Why didn't you turn around for one second? That's all you needed to do. And he said, you didn't tell me to. (laughs) And that's why in law school they teach you to coach your client. That was the class that he went to. So, that's the answer to all my questions. You can see miracles, and you could learn Torah, and you could hear Rabbi Wallerstein speak, and you can hear speeches. But if you don't turn around to the door, if you don't believe what you're learning is true and what you're seeing is true, you're guilty. So I'm here to coach you. You're guilty. You can see Makos and Mitzrayim, and you can die in Mitzrayim. Because the Makos were just things that happened. But you didn't turn around, and you didn't believe your own story. And there are so many guys that want to change, and they want to grow, but they don't believe their own story. And when it comes down to it, and they fail, they don't believe in themselves anymore. They're finished. They're done. And if you don't believe in your own story, you're guilty. Everyone in this room says, we want Mashiach now. Everybody, if I ask you, I want Mashiach now. You don't want Mashiach now. It's a lie. Because if you wanted Mashiach, you'd be changing. Because if Mashiach came right now, none of us would be there for him. Well, none of us are good enough. If Mashiach came right this moment, what did you do yesterday? What did you do the day before? What did you look at? What did you listen to? What did you eat? How did you dive in? You really believe Mashiach's coming tomorrow? You will be sitting here the rest of the night tonight learning. What are you, nuts? You're going to go home and watch TV? Mashiach's coming tomorrow? So we don't believe our own story. We don't look at our own door. Yeah, Kleisrael went through the Yamsuf. They went through on a trip. What was the trip? It was a trip and the mud was, a, oh, very nice. And a plane is very nice. And it's pretty wild that I could, you could fly in the air. And now they're making a new plane where there's three floors and they're going to take 1,300 people in a, a whole town they're going to put in a plane. And it's wild and it's unbelievable. And then you walk away. It's fantastic. And you walk away. You go to a zoo and you look at thousands of different animals and how each one has a different habitat. And you say, wow. But do you change? Does it change you? No. You see all the nifloys of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Does it change you? A baby's born, changes you for two minutes. You get married, you're under the chuppah, it's two minutes. Do you believe in that marriage? How come marriages don't work? How come so many marriages don't work? I love you. I love you. Do you believe in that? Or are you just saying that? Gedalim love their wives, and Gedalim's wives love them. Look how they look at each other. Do they ever lift their voice? Do they ever yell at another one? Did you ever see a gadol yell at his wife or his wife yell at him? So I walk around, I love you, I love you. Eh, you don't believe it yourself. Emuna means that you believe. Monhu. They named it Mon. Mahu, because they didn't know what it was. What kind of pusik is that? So I didn't know what to call it, so I called it this and that. If you didn't know what to call it, why'd you call it Mon? Call it Aish. Call it Lechem. Call it, I don't know what you want to call it. 
Because what does it mean? If you take the word manhu and you scramble the word, the letters, mem nun, hey bob alf, it spells emuna. When you don't know what it is and you don't understand what's going on in your life, you tried and you fell and you tried and you fell and you kept three Shabbosim and Mashiach didn't come. And you did this and you did this and you're trying to change and terrible things are happening in your life. When you don't know what it is, manhu. You have to have a muna. You have to have belief in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's the answer to everything. The answer is this story. If you don't look at the door, you're dead. You could stand here and say, Mashiach's coming, Mashiach's coming. You don't look at the door to see if he's coming. He ain't coming. And that's the problem that most of us have. We go to Shiurim, and we listen to tapes, and we get all turned on. But when it comes to it, we don't believe the story. We don't really believe Mashiach's coming. Because if you did, you'd be like the Chafetz Chaim. He had a bag packed. He had a suitcase. Our suitcases are packed to go to Atlantic City, Miami, to the island where there are no Jews, wherever you can go. Who has in this, uh, 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 I'm packing for Mashiach. And then we can have a whole class on, what do you pack in your suitcase for Mashiach? Not your tone And not your bathing suit. That's not what was in the Chafetz Chaim's bag. So, I'm telling you that the Chidah says that there's going to be 15 days of darkness before Mashiach comes and we're not all going to make it just like they didn't make it in Mitzrayim. Who's going to make it? The ones that really believe. The ones that look at the door. The ones that look at their door. The door in your heart. Hashem says, open the door the size of the hole of a needle. That's all I want you to do. Just open it a little bit. And I'll open it like you never saw. Tonight, I want you to walk away from this shear. Number one, Hakaras HaTov. Number two, make sure you feed the birds. I, I, I just told someone, they asked me about their kids. Their kids are very mean. Mean kids. They don't get along with other kids. They're very mean. I said, take them to feed the birds. Because when they see that you're feeding the birds who are not giving you back, what are they going to give you back? They make on your car. That's what they do for you. Right? I got a whole deal. Seagulls, I'm feeding them 10 years. I made a deal. You stay off my car. So no matter what, no matter what, they stay off my car. But seriously, I said, take your children and feed the birds every Friday. And they're going to get used to helping things that can't give them back anything. And it will change their lives. Start at two years old, three years old. They love it. And, and, and feed the birds. Teach them to do chesed. That's number one. And number two, tonight go home and just, just open a little teeny door. A little teeny door in yourself. Believe in yourself. You have to believe in yourself that you can change and that, and, and, and that you, you have the courage to get up after you get knocked down. When you're standing up, big deal. It's when you're on the floor. That's when you need to have the courage. This is what this week, this week, you see Klai Yisrael going through so much and still not having Emuna. Emuna is the basis of Judaism. We gotta bring Mashiach. Maybe, maybe we can change the, what the Chidah says. The Chidah quotes it from the Zoya. Maybe if we go out and we go out tonight and, and we talk to other people who need to change. I don't want my best friend to die while I have Mashiach. I don't want to see that. I, I can't imagine that the Jews left Mitzrayim happy. They lost their brothers and their cousins and their best friends. It's not about us seeing Mashiach. I want my friend to see Mashiach too. And if he's doing the wrong thing, I don't want to bury him in those 15 days of darkness. I don't want to bury any Jew in those 15 days of darkness. I won't. For sure not. Hashem should give me that I should be able to live in the times of Mashiach, but I'm a Kayan. So I'm not burying any Jews. But whoever's not a Kayan, 
what a terrible job for 15 days to bury your brothers. And then you're going to say, him? I could have changed him. And now you're burying him. It's a chidot, it's a zaya. It's not some, it's the real thing. So, let's put the R, the light, that in those 15 days that they're supposed to be that we're going to be buried the Jews, that all the Jews that are alive today in the schus of us learning, in the schus of us changing, in the schus of us helping, that God should not make those 15 days, and we shouldn't bury anybody, and we should have the schus to take all our friends and our whole family and everybody that we know together with us to the base Hamigdash. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.